0: Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. Your need-to-know cheat sheet on news and politics for the week ahead. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and today I'm joined by the wonderful Alex Andreu. Good morning, Alex. How are you this Monday morning? Morning, Jacob. I'm very well, thank you. Very good. So first up, let's uh, let's talk about prisons. The closure of Wandsworth Prison has been touted after the escape of Daniel Khalif, but Alex Chalk appeared to write that off over the weekend.
1: But what what is happening with the prison at the moment? Well, I mean, of course, he wrote that off because what is happening to the prison system is directly related to Alex Chalk being completely unable to close a major prison um, because everywhere is hugely overcrowded, especially the very old sort of Victorian prisons, which are now multi sharing cells. Uh, that are meant to hold, you know, cells that are meant to hold one person, hold two cells that yeah. are meant to hold two people, now hold three, etc., cetera, et cetera. I mean, Wandsworth is a good example. It is certified to hold 979 prisoners, and it's currently holding over 1,600.
0: It, yeah, it strikes me as one, how can that possibly be safe? And then also, how can any prison in that sort of condition fulfill any duty of, of reform rather than just been being punitive?
1: Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. It basically goes into the same uh, sort of story that the school story goes and the asylum seeker story goes in that the government at the moment seems to just be warehousing people. (laughs) Whether they're uh, asylum seekers or students or prisoners, um, the the public infrastructure is so broken down. And and that's why I think the, the prison's story matters because it feeds into that same narrative that everything is falling apart, nothing works properly. And just like the school story, it has real cut through. It was on the front page of all the tabloids and everyone was talking about it for days. So the reason it matters politically is that it prevents the government from coming up for air. You know, it just keeps drowning in one scandal
0: after the next. It feels to me like the government is kind of running the country like how I maintain my bedroom. That I've just got a chair that I'll tidy by dumping everything onto <laughs> it. And the rest of the room gets tidy, but that chair is a complete piece of, piece of hell in the corner. And that seems to be the way the, the government is managing the country at the moment, just putting stuff vaguely out of sight, but not really out of sight and not dealing with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and the latest, by the way, in this story is that I see some reports uh, that Jeremy Hunt himself raised uh, concerns about the extremely worrying conditions. That's a quote, um, and low staff levels at Wandsworth Prison to the jail's uh, the jail's governor and the prison's minister after being contacted by a constituent who had served time there, and this was in in august i think just a couple of weeks before that escape so you know all of all of this stuff is going on i mean guess what labor leader keir starmer is doing today he's visiting a school with shadow education secretary bridget Phillipson. um yeah it's just it's just teed up so perfectly for the government to look completely useless and you have alex chalk touring the studios on on Sunday, um, you know, announcing a bevy of reviews into what happened. I mean, you have a prison that's meant to hold nine hundred people and it's holding sixteen hundred and and it only has at times like just over a dozen officers on duty at night. What do you think is going to happen?
0: Yeah, it doesn't really need a major report, no, it doesn't feel like really to me, mystery, to be honest. Is it? No. <laughs> With Chalk, I mean, is he totally is he totally safe here? Because Sunak is just so screwed politically. I mean, we saw Sunak when Ben Wallace went and he did that really timid reshuffle because he's obviously so scared of rocking the boat. Chalk hmm. isn't too long in the job. But you would expect a situation like this to make someone feel somewhat politically unsafe. But I don't get that sense whatsoever because I, it feels to me like there is such a... A dearth of Talon, and Sunak is so scared of rocking the boat that no matter what happens, he can't really get rid of
1: anyone at the moment. Yes, and what's quite interesting from a constitutional point of view is that the, the doctrine of individual ministerial responsibility, which meant that if something went catastrophically wrong, you know, in your department, you carried the can. And that began to fall apart over prisons... It was over prison prison escapes that ministers first said, "Well, this is really not a policy issue; it's an admin. It's a sort of a, a practical, operational issue. So, ministers minister shouldn't resign over that." And we've come a long way from there mm-hmm. um, to now it not being discussed at all. I mean, Sunak's difficulty in many ways is that people like Alex Joke and, and uh, Gillian Keegan have inherited a very bad situation and may behind the scenes be doing a very good job in trying to resolve it. And so to sack them would create a huge amount of acrimony within his party because it would be seen as very unfair. And so all of it is, is very difficult because Sunak would be seen politically internally within the party as punishing the wrong people. And so, he just has to—he just has to lump it, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, you can't really have ministerial responsibility when it doesn't feel like anyone feels like they are responsible for anything that's going on because they haven't been in their brief long enough to have any sense of yeah. even knowing what is going on.
1: I mean, that's basically the bottom line. You can't have ministerial responsibility when you have this rate of churn in government. Yeah. So it all comes back to that instability, you know four prime ministers in three years, um, you know, 10 schools ministers, seven education secretaries. It's ridiculous. If you ran a a chip shop like that, it would have closed by now.
0: (laughs) On other security issues that are going on at the moment, Chinese spying feels like it's back in the news, not that it ever massively went away. What's going on there at the moment?
1: I mean, I think that will be actually the huge story of the week. Um, It's basically about two men, one in his 20s, one in his 30s. Uh, The Times has named the 20-something man, um, but I haven't seen a second source uh, naming him, so I think it, it would be safer to keep the name under wraps for now. They were arrested in March under the Official Secrets Act, um, they they have been released on bail until October. So, you know, they haven't been convicted of anything. Um, the interesting thing about this alleged spy was that his links were with the most hawkish conservative MPs on China, you know, who are privy to quite a lot of classified information, including Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Alicia Kearns, which, who has a very good reputation generally in Parliament, and Security Minister Tom Tugginhat. Um, now, both of them are real China hawks. And so I find it interesting that, you know, someone was obviously keeping an eye on them.
0: Yeah, right. So imagine a spy sort of sat in a canteen reading The Economist and just going, China. Just acting enraged at the articles he's reading until someone walks past and goes, "Yeah, yeah, I'm not too sure about what they're up to." Yeah, yeah. As well. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and suddenly, suddenly making
1: friends <laughs> yeah. uh, and apparently trying to date several female journalists, um, which is uh, I don't know if that was part of the plan or just a byproduct of being single and in Westminster. Yeah. It will be. You know what the very interesting thing is? It will be interesting to see what James Cleverly does. Because he announced only about ten days ago a decision to travel to China this year. Yeah. So I think that that will come into question.
0: Well, yeah, that felt like a, a major coup to him, and in, in a way, of being mm. invited mm. there. But I suppose that could appear to be somewhat short-sighted if he's gone there and they've uh, been scraping all sorts of dirt at the same time.
1: Yeah. I I think it's also easy to overread the story, right? Um. Ultimately, this will not change government policy, I don't think. It's not like government didn't fucking know China spies. Um, You know, every world power spies, including us, especially China. So whatever the reasons were that government was resisting branding China an enemy, um, and they are primarily economic reasons, they persist. And you can see that in the split between cabinet members pushing to go further uh, um, against China or not. You know, you have, you have people like Tom Tugendhat or Suella Braveman pushing for a more arm's length relationship with China, and they're being resisted by Cleverly and Hunt because the reasons are reasons of diplomacy and reasons of economy. Those reasons will not go away You know, it's not like suddenly the UK doesn't need the China economically or that the wisdom of keeping cordial relations has gone away in terms of foreign policy. All those reasons are still there. I mean, this will feed hawks like Ian Duncan Smith who basically echo U.S. Republican China hawks on this issue? It might nudge the government a little bit in terms of public language, but I don't think it will change the fundamentals.
0: I, I did a, a bunker global not too long ago where I spoke about Chinese spying mm. and kind of came to the the conclusion that when we when we catch spies from other countries, it would appear on a on an ethical level we act so enraged about it, but it's probably actually that we just think well. That's wound us up because we want to be the best at spying. We just need yeah. to the, be, the best counter to people spying on our country is probably improving our own spy operations, which feels like a. I'm not saying there's not a moral quandary there to that, but it's a it's an accepted thing. We all know this this happens, and just when we spot one, it's it must be much more yeah. prevalent than uh, than it course, is. Of course, well, of course. We'll speak more widely about the G20 in a little bit, but Sunak did. Sort of respond to this whilst he was there, is he seemingly quite firm, or is that just just headline spin, as you said?
1: Oh, I mean I saw the the pool clip that he did at the airport just as he was boarding to come back, I think after the g twenty um He raised it first of all uh, Xi Jinping was not at the g twenty it was his premier Li, Li Kang. And so he said he raised it on Sunday morning. Um, The quote is that he relayed very strong concerns. I mean, I I think the problem with Sunak is that he lacks stature. And this is not a comment on on his size, obviously before people get um, annoyed, (laughs) you know. Macron or Zelensky are exactly the same height and project plenty of gravitas on the world stage. there's something about Sunak, everything he says has been learned by rote. And I think that undermines him. You know, while message discipline is absolutely vital for a party in a cabinet, the prime minister is the one person who should be able to explain things and justify things in his own words, right? And Sunak does that on economic matters and matters of technology. Because he cares about that stuff and he knows about that <laughs> stuff, which makes his seeming inability to do so on any other issues, especially on foreign policy, to just stand there and mechanically repeat the same line six times, it just, it just makes him look like he didn't make the decision and he doesn't even know the reasons behind the decision. It is the opposite of being prime ministerial.
0: The criticism of him can be that he's a bad communicator to one extent, but I don't necessarily believe that's true. It's he picks and chooses when to be a good communicator. And that almost makes it more jarring. Absolutely. Because occasionally he is a good communicator. And then on certain things that he just clearly doesn't give a shit about, he he can't make himself become one.
1: Yeah, and on this and on this sort of stuff, to just trot out a line that oh, I relayed very serious concerns and, and expect that China will take notice. I mean, it's like being mauled by a gnat.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not angry, China. We're just disappointed. Finally, on domestic matters, what's Starmer up to this week? So he's at the, the TUC conference today, isn't he?
1: He's well, I he's speaking, uh, I think not publicly, he's at the sort of dinner that they hold, okay, um, I, in the evening, and so that will be quite interesting because Sharon Graham had a pop at him on Sunday, I think it was. Uh, she called Labour in '90s Tribute Act. Um, I mean, McLynch will be there. Labour is not in an easy relationship with unions at the moment because it's getting very close to government. And and that is actually quite a natural thing. Because once you're in government, you're effectively all those workers employer. And you will be in a in an adversarial situation with the unions. I mean hopefully that relationship can be managed in a much more amicable collaborative constructive creative way and i think looking back at labour's uh, record that seems to be the case you know we we'd never had any nhs strikes when labour were in power and so i think there's every reason to be cheerful. I saw a quote somewhere that, you know, leftists are always disappointed in labor, but it's so much better to be disappointed in labor in government. Um, <laughs> and I think I think that actually says it all. Uh, you know, the unions will pick their battles. They won't make too much noise because they don't particularly want to rock the boat, just as they're about to get a government that will work much more closely and collaboratively with them. The distance that is uh, emerging between Labour and the unions is an entirely natural byproduct to how strongly they're doing in the polls because they look like a government in waiting, and you would expect a government in waiting to begin to distance itself from vested interests. Which yeah. it is sympathetic towards,
0: of course, and hopefully you know you can come from different positions on issues without necessarily being entirely adversarial. There's a way to do that. Yeah. Sort of the pos- the positionality doesn't mean that it has to be an argument.
1: Yeah, and I don't think Labour do come from you know a hugely different position, I, and I think that is the fundamental difference. You know, if a union goes to Labour and says we want a six percent. Um, pay rise then Labour will say we can afford to give you three yeah when you have a union going to meet a conservative government the underlying current is always oh and by the way I also want to smash the unions because I dislike <laughs> you I don't want you to exist you know and that makes the relationship a really very different one doesn't it mm. you know an, an employer that loathes its employees
0: now turning further afield, what were some of the key things we saw at the G20 over the weekend? And what will it actually mean for us on a domestic level? Are there, were any of the the decisions made ones that will tangibly have an impact on us?
1: The, the G20 conference I think was a huge success for India. It really managed to project everything it wanted to project. It was a very successfully run um, event. Um, I'm surprised actually they were they were able to agree to communicate. I thought they wouldn't be able to agree to communicate at all like they didn't last time. On this occasion, actually they stripped out accusations that were specifically about Russia and managed to arrive at a at a consensus that countries like Brazil and India and South Africa felt comfortable with calling on member states. this is the quote, to refrain from action against the territorial integrity and sovereignty of political independence of any state. And so this is something that refers to the Ukraine war, war without naming Russia specifically and gives them the ability to still claim that Ukraine is also infin- infringing on their territorial integrity and sovereignty. Um, so yes, it I mean, this is a disappointing compromise but better compromise than none at all.
0: What's this new new trade corridor that I've I've been reading somewhat about? That it would appear we as Britain have found ourselves once again on the outside looking in.
1: Yes, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? I think that is the biggest story in UK terms, and I think Sunak will be asked about it once he's back in the UK. Uh, I think he's due to make a statement about the G20 in the commons today, Monday. And it will be interesting because the UK seems to have been quite specifically left out of this India, Middle East, Europe, US economic corridor that Biden announced with much uh, fanfare. Uh, Labour already... Digging into this, David Lammy said it's extraordinary that the UK has been left out. Um, The only other thing of note, I guess, is that the Prime Minister has used the opportunity to drum a bit of international interest in this AI safety summit that the UK wants to host in November and invite a few people at long last to it the quote from a government sort of senior advisor is that he sees ai as his long-term legacy i suspect this has to do more with his future employment plans if i'm honest i think this is the issue that brings him to life and this is the job that he's going to get after he's no longer prime minister so um yeah i mean it's embarrassing I suspect the government are going to spin it as we're trying to do our own thing with India. But I mean, it is just hugely embarrassing for, for this, you know, press release to come out that basically goes. So we made an agreement in the G20 that in- includes you, 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 not you, 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 you and you. <laughs> yeah,
0: it almost feels quite sad if as like when you're you're a kid at school and everyone in class gets invited to a party and one person one person <laughs> no doesn't no. so like you, your mum yeah. takes you out for ice cream or something to make up for it and pretend that's really good but it's it's not it's not really good is it so uh, yeah so the the ai legacy thing to me also strikes me as really strange as it would appear to me to be like if you were prime minister whilst the internet was becoming popular that you felt like something that you could tie your legacy to. It's something that's just simply it's happening to the world, isn't it? It's just a revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's technology. interviewing
1: for a job. He's interviewing yeah. for a job. It's as simple as that.
0: On a uh, final couple of world stories, just to to wrap up. So, mm. Morocco at the moment, there are yeah. horrific images coming out of the country after the earthquake this weekend. It's always really hard to know what the situation is in these types of uh, when these sort of events happen. but as best as we can, what's going on there and what what will the likely fallout over the week be i
1: mean it's horrible it's horrible because you're talking about quite remote areas quite rural areas which is always much more difficult because it's difficult to direct emergency rescue services in in that direction you can't disperse them anywhere um uh, I guess the good luck of it is that it has happened in a season where all those people who are having to spend the night outside will at least not be freezing because the Part of Morocco where this happened is quite mountainous. Uh, I know Mm. people find it difficult to imagine cold bits of Morocco, but there are cold bits to Morocco during the winter. Um, The Moroccan government's initial reaction was quite defensive. They pretended they were coping just fine. It quickly became clear they were overwhelmed. So they have just approved a limited number, I think four countries to start with, to send in personnel to help. The UK is one of them. We are deploying 60 search and rescue specialists and some dogs and some equipment. I mean, it's horrible. We're we're talking about 2,100 dead at at the latest count, and that will only climb.
0: And finally, let's look at the the latest from Ukraine. It's been predicted that Ukraine can only sustain its counteroffensive for around 30 more days. What will that mean when they run out of what they need to continue the push?
1: I mean, was it going to be much more than that though? <laughs> because I seem I seem to remember that the whole point of a spring-summer push was that once it starts raining in September, it becomes impossible because the ground basically becomes quicksand. Um and so I don't know whether that's just Zelensky and Secretary Blinken who just visited Ukraine a few days ago, trying to keep international support motivated, reminding them that, you know, there's an active situation uh, here and, and you need to stay strong and stay resolute. I, I would think there's more of that involved rather than Ukraine thinking that the good weather will last well into October, because as soon as it starts raining, basically everything has to stop. So they will keep pushing. And and I think to put the story in perspective, you know, we need to remember, and I saw a, a military specialist the other day saying this, Ukraine is already winning, right, in a very real way. The Russian objective was to subjugate Ukraine completely in a matter of days and swap the government for one of their choosing. That is not going to happen now. That is never going to happen now, right? So the fact that we are a little bit um, impatient with the progress being made is fair enough but let's remember the overall picture. Ukraine was in a, in a situation where everyone expected it to be swallowed up within a week. And it has ended up not just defending itself, but beginning to push back significantly on those Russian positions. It will just take time. Yeah, it
0: strikes me when we say it's only 30 more days, when if you'd said that at the, the beginning of all of this, that Ukraine mm-hmm. would defend itself for 30 days, there were people who may have not expected that to have been the case initially Absolutely. so it really highlights just how how horrifically drawn out this has all, all been as well just how long mm. it's been going mm. on for uh, alex that's the end to start your week thank you so much for joining me this morning my pleasure if you enjoyed the show please review us wherever you listen and remember you can sign up to support us on patreon from free plan the month you'll get episodes ad free and early plus a shout out on this show here's alex with today's
1: A big dollop of gratitude and a Monday morning hug to Ervin D, Alistair Finlay and Ewan Parry.
0: I'm Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for listening and come back tomorrow for another episode of The Bunker.
1: Start your week with The Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu and Jacob Jarvis. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Popmasters production.